0: Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Numbers again. Today, Numbers studying uh, chapter 19 together. Numbers chapter 19, we'll read the entirety of the chapter, 22 verses, and you can find that on page 127 of the uh, CART Bibles if you picked one up on the way in. Numbers chapter 19, one of the the beautiful points of reading a book like Numbers is is there's a lot of different sort of stuff in this book. Uh, There's narrative. Uh, There's law, uh, there's census, we looked at some of that, Uh, and and it keeps things a bit fresh. But through all of these different genres of text that we find in the book of Numbers, the Lord really is is teaching one message to his people, and that is that He's the one who supplies for all of their needs. We're going to see that today in Numbers chapter 19 as we look at a law that the Lord has given concerning purification for his people. Uh, Numbers chapter 19, uh, before we read, let's go to the Lord together and seek his blessing in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you have supplied all of our needs richly in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that uh, as we have confessed together today by a single sacrifice, he has uh, purified for all time those who are being sanctified in you. We thank you for his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And as we read about these sacrifices that you gave your people under the law, we pray that we would see through them and see to you. We would understand what you were doing then uh, so that we can continue to understand what you are doing now and will continue to do for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to believe and to rejoice in him, we pray in his name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 19. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eliezer the priest, and shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and "...bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp, but the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water, and bathe his body in water, and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water of impurity, for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering." And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day... He will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. For the unclean, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt sin offering and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings, and on the persons who were there, and on whoever touched the bone, or the slain, or the dead, or the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean, on the third day, and on the seventh day. Thus, on the seventh day, he shall cleanse him. And he shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and at evening he shall be clean. If the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord." Because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him, he is unclean. And it shall be a statute forever for them. The one who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and the one who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening, and whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we... Study it together today. I wonder uh, if there are any of you who have gotten tired of the routine by now. Uh, Some of you have been Christians a very long time. Some of you have been walking with Christ longer than I have been alive. And I wonder if any of you have gotten tired of the ever-present need to go back to the Lord over and over again and have to say all over again, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Consider the time that we spend together each Sunday. Week after week, we, we gather together. And when we come together, we sing and we pray and we hear God's word. And we also confess our sins. We confess our sins corporately. We confess our sins Privately, we confess our sins generally. As our confession tells us, we confess our particular sins particularly. We do that every week, and if you think about it, that's a lot of confessing. 52 weeks every year, 500 confessions every decade, and that's only counting the time we spend in worship. If you are any kind of Christian with any kind of spiritual pulse, if your heart is soft and your Bible is open, I'm sure that you add more confessions to that probably daily in your time of prayer. And I wonder if any of you have gotten tired of the routine by now. Probably about, uh, about 12 years ago, I had a conversation with a woman who was a member of our church at the time. She was probably in her mid-30s, and she had been been raised around Christianity. She was brought up in a, in a church-shaped organization, uh, but she had only really been a Christian for a few years at this time. And she told me how she had been struggling with this, this experience she was having since she had become a Christian, that her sins seemed to be getting worse. Not necessarily that she was... ...doing more sinful things, perhaps. I hope she wasn't, but, but she was seeing it all the more. It was becoming more real to her everywhere she looked in her life. Before she became a believer, she would have said that sin was a, a foreign concept. It was something archaic. It was something that smelled like musty old books and, and judgmental sermons. But now that she had trusted in Christ... Her sin seemed real, and now her sin seemed everywhere, and she wanted to know if that was normal. Was that really what the Christian life was supposed to feel like? I've since had that same conversation with any number of you folks. Young Christians and old Christians and people bumping up against this ever-present reality of sin... And confession and Christians wondering, is this really what my faith is supposed to feel like? Numbers chapter 19 is is a wonderful text for anyone who has ever wondered about the preoccupation that Christians seem to have with personal sin. Why does it seem such a big deal? Why are we always dealing with it? Why are we always reminded of it? Why do we keep coming back week after week and confession after confession? There are two truths, two lessons that I want you to see in this passage today. I have no fancy phrasing. I have no alliteration. But uh, just the straightforward message of the text. The first lesson we need to learn is that God makes our mortality an ever-present reminder of our sin. God makes our mortality an ever-present reminder of our sin. As you begin to look at this chapter, it presents to us a bit of a conundrum. The conundrum is that this text really is pretty straightforward, and yet we still don't understand it. It's straightforward in the sense that this passage gives us a problem that all people have. The Lord speaks here to his covenant people Israel of this problem they have of uncleanness. He speaks to them in the context here of the fact that coming into contact with dead people or dead bodies or, or dead, uh, the graves of dead people even makes them unclean, unfit to come into his presence. Unable to have fellowship with God or fellowship with one another without passing contagion from one person to the next until the entire community is infected. So there's a straightforward problem here. The problem is uncleanness. And the solution God gives to them is pretty straightforward as well. He tells them to take a red heifer and to slaughter it outside of the camp then to burn it down into ash so that that ash could become a sort of instant cleansing ritual, something that could be reconstituted with water and sprinkled wherever they found uncleanness in the camp. So far, so good. We have a a human problem, and we have a divine solution. This issue of uncleanness, and God says, I'll give you a sacrifice to deal with that. Now, I think, really, most New Testament believers, uh, the place we need to start is with this issue of uncleanness, because we don't quite know what to do with this. We don't have this anymore. Praise the Lord, because Christ has made his sacrifice for sinners. We no longer deal in terms of clean or unclean believers. And yet the Lord was teaching an important lesson to his people through this in the Old Testament. So we need to begin not with this red heifer God supplied, but with the idea of uncleanness. Now, verses 11 and 12 give us the general principle. Let's read it again. It says, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. That's expanded into a few more particulars, verses 14 and 16, depending on whether you became unclean inside or whether you became unclean outside. The Lord is telling his people there's an impurity that comes upon you. And particularly here, it comes upon you when you have contact with the dead. There's this defilement that doesn't just disappear all on its own. And if it is not kept in check, verse 13 goes on to say it can spread also to the tabernacle of the Lord. There is this dangerous impurity that can spread and endanger not only the individual but the entire community. This isn't the first time we've encountered categories of clean and unclean in the book of Numbers. You remember that that was why God gave his people a sort of concentric circle arrangement of their camps in the wilderness as an illustration to them that that what is holy cannot share space with what is unclean. So he told them back in Numbers chapter 5, and and the chapters leading up to that, that you were to take at the center of your camp, God in his holiness would dwell in his tabernacle. Outside the tabernacle, the Levites became a hedge of protection between God's holiness uh, and the clean yet common people. Outside the Levites were the clans, and then outside of the clans, chapter 5 tells us, you are to take anyone who is unclean because of leprosy or a bodily discharge or through contact with the dead, you are to put them outside the congregation of the people. So we have this concept that, that that which is defiled can't share space with one who is holy, and if you've read the Old Testament, you've seen this in other places as well. This isn't new. You're aware that this is sort of everywhere. It's the stock and trade of Old Testament religion. But of all the words that God gives in his Old Testament regulations, dealing with the nature of uncleanness, I think this text here, Numbers chapter 19, is one of the most helpful in understanding not just what's going on, but what God is communicating to his people with this category of uncleanness. Specifically, this command here in Numbers chapter 19 shows us that the concept of uncleanness was meant to be a reminder to his people of the seriousness of sin even when what they were engaging in was not directly sinful. Let me say that again. That this concept of uncleanness was given to remind his people of the seriousness of sin even when what they were engaging in was not directly sinful. It was a sort of generalized reminder of of their situation. Let me explain what I mean. If you go home today and you you sit down with concordance uh, in your living room and you begin to look up in the law of Moses all of the occasions of the language of clean and unclean, you will find them in clusters. You will find one very large section in Leviticus chapter 11 dealing with the kosher food laws the clean and the unclean animals, and that's one big section. But then you will find most of the others dealing not with what you can eat, but with what you are, dealing with the human condition, dealing with uh, the issues of bodily life, life in a body that that touches the things of this world that can be broken, that, that breaks down in the end. Most of the mentions of uncleanness in the Old Testament law have to do with reminding people that mankind is a mortal being. So if you look through your concordance, you'll find that most of those uh, occasions have to do with things like birth, or death, or sickness, or procreation. They have to do with things like bones, and blood, and disease, and discharges. Earthy things, and God is pointing to all of them with this category of uncleanness uh, to say to them, here are things that cannot come into my presence. Why? Is it because God gets squeamish at the sight of a little blood? Is it because the Lord of heaven and earth gets the heebie-jeebies when he thinks about leprosy? Of course not. The the category of clean and unclean is not given to man to, to expose a problem in God, but rather to point to a problem in us. So the common denominator in all those defilements in the Old Testament is that they can all be traced back to our mortality and beyond that to what brings about our mortality. All those things stood like signposts pointing out, reminding us that our lives are frail and they are fleeting. And in the biblical mind, our lives are frail and they are fleeting specifically because our lives are full of sin. So even though bones and death are not sinful in themselves, God made them a reminder. A reminder to his people that sin has left its mark on our earthly existence. And if you want to, you can trace it all the way back to the garden. God made Adam out of the dust of the earth. He formed him and he breathed life into his nostrils. And then he gave him a commandment which was not to be transgressed. Adam, on the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. You'll die physically, you'll die spiritually, eventually you'll die eternally. The New Testament equivalent of that is Romans. tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's the Bible's position on death, if you were wondering. The Bible's position is that death is an interruption into the human story. And that it's an interruption that always points beyond itself and back to the sin that brought it into existence. You're aware that in our modern age, probably most people would like to think that we've gotten beyond this kind of thinking by now. In our materialistic, enlightened world, most people are convinced that this downward slump toward entropy is the natural state of affairs in the universe. And so we convince ourselves also that this downward slump toward entropy is probably the natural state of affairs for us. That that death is a natural thing. Possibly even more natural than birth, if you think about it. All things tend toward decay, so why not us too? Deep down, we know that's not how it works. Just this past week, I don't know if you saw the headlines, but... Uh, federal agents announced that they are investigating a southern colorado funeral home called back to nature before they were shut down back to nature offered what they called green burial services that is burial without embalming fluid uh, bodies interred in wicker caskets that's fine it's all billed as a, a sort of uh, more environmentally friendly uh, quicker easier way to take your corporeal nutrients and put them back into this wonderful cycle of life and death and life and death, and uh, the world keeps spinning, doesn't it? That's the sales pitch, anyway. And then after a number of complaints from neighboring businesses, officials showed up and uncovered the decaying remains of 189 unidentified human beings. And your gut reaction tells the story to that. The headline in the Guardian said this was horrific. But horrific only makes sense if you understand that man is more than the sum total of his organic being and his structure. Horrific only makes sense if you understand that death is actually horrible. That it's inter- an interruption into what we were made for. The position of the scriptures confirms our gut reaction. We already agree that death an abomination, we instinctively know that mortality is abnormal. And the Bible confirms those instincts. Scripture tells us that mankind was not created just to live three score and ten and then to count it a blessing. God made man holy, and he made man upright, and he made us able to share his everlasting blessedness. But sin entered our story through the failure of our first father. And with sin came death, the destroyer of that fellowship. According to scripture, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, our mortality now stands as an ever-present reminder that sin is taking its toll. What is eternal punishment called in the book of Revelation? The second death. From beginning to end, it's, it's all there, and you can trace it out. This is the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is that things are not as they were meant to be. Tragedy and sadness have entered our existence because we have rebelled against a God who gives life and light to all His creation. And again, Romans gives us the score. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's how it shows up in the language of the New Testament. And in the language of the Old Testament, that same lesson showed up in this issue of what was clean and what was unclean. That which could not be allowed to share in the presence of the holy and ever-living God. Consider verse 14 of our text today. Verse 14. It says, This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who's come into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. I bet if we wanted to, if we we had a little bit of imagination, we could come up with some applications of this text this very verse that that are pointed directly at sinful actions, right? Maybe people are gathering together for a secret seance. Maybe there are murderers who have been caught in cold blood above the body of their victim. I think far more rationally, the, the obvious explanation that for the vast majority of instances, this text would apply to people who were engaged in doing good rather than in doing evil. Think about it. This is an age before hospitals and health care. Who in Israel is most likely to be in a tent or to enter a tent where there is a dead body? It's the family member. It's the neighbor. It's the relative who comes to console and to grieve, who comes to prepare the body for burial, the one who is doing a wonderful thing, a blessed thing for someone else to remember those who have gone before them. It's those who are engaged in good things that this is speaking of. The same goes for the situation in verse 16. Whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. It's true, there were grave robbers. That's a real thing. And yet most often this text would apply to ministers of mercy. This text would apply to someone like Joseph of Arimathea, who said, you know what, actually, I've got a grave. I'm not using it. Why don't we we put him in there? This text would apply to those devout women who went out before dawn even cracked on Sunday morning uh, to take spices and ointments to the body that they thought would still be in that tomb. These texts are dealing with people who are doing good things, and yet the Lord is saying... Remember the defilement of death. It all means that this uncleanness uh, for these people in this text is probably not a result of personal sin. It's not a direct disobedience that led to this law. Rather, God is proactively using everyday things like life and death to lead his people beyond what they could see and into the spiritual reality behind our mortality. It could have been one of the most commonplace scenarios in the ancient world. Uh, Here is this nation sentenced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until every single family has someone who has died. One generation dying off. And there was nobody in Israel at this time that this law was given that would not have had to sit in the silence of uncleanness and contemplate mortality. At some point, through no fault of their own, through no sin that they have committed, there's no one who would not have had to be reminded even in their grief that death is the great separator between God and man. And for those who have been shaped by the biblical worldview, both in the Old Testament and in the New, the cords of death always draw us back to the sin that brought that curse upon us in the first place. So if we ask, what was the Lord doing with this regulation concerning uncleanness? The answer is that he's making our mortality an ever-present reminder of sin. Something we can't get away from, something we're not supposed to be able to get away from in this life. Secondly, in this ritual with the red heifer, God is teaching that he is the one who provides a sacrifice for sinners. There's something gracious uh, about the way that this chapter is arranged. If there's something reassuring about God's perfect love for his people. Anytime he tells you about his solution to your problem before he even diagnoses the problem that you have. It's a bit like the way that John the Baptist introduced his followers to Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." We call that the bottom line up front, I believe. Gets straight to the punch. Here's the one you need. So that while their eyes are still tracing his finger, pointing to this one who's coming, they can begin to say, he is the one who can meet my deepest need. God gives his answer before he even tells what the problem is. And that's what we find here in Numbers chapter 19. I rearranged it because that's the way my little brain works. We had to look at the problem first in my mind, but the text doesn't begin with this problem of uncleanness. The text begins with the provision of the sacrifice. Chapter 19, verse 2. Notice the triple mention of God's seriousness stacked up. He calls this a law, a statute, and a commandment. Verse 2. This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish and on which a yoke has never come, and you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. Now, again, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, there's a lot here that that will look uh, like something you've seen before. Uh, this is not completely new, and yet there are details here in this offering that the Lord commands that are unlike any other sacrifice that God commands for his people anywhere else in the Old Testament. A few details. For one, this is the only offering anywhere in the Bible where the color of the sacrifice makes any difference. Sometimes the Lord says, in you know, one color. Not spotted or mottled or anything like that, but nowhere else does he say, it has to be this, it has to be red. When you think of red, you should think of like an earthy brownish red, right? We're not talking about Clifford the Big Red Heifer. This is is not a a crimson color. But rather, the, uh, the, the idea is that just like every other sacrifice, it has to be perfect. It can't be that sickly animal. Uh, that's over there that was going to die anyway, so let's give that one to God. It had to be perfect. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. It had to be perfectly red-ish. So why red? Well, the text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't say. We have ideas. We have suggestions. Perhaps a reddish heifer was, was just more rare. And so maybe it represented a more costly sacrifice that could cover the entire community. Maybe, maybe. Maybe red is the color of life and vigor. You remember that text that talks about adolescent King David before his anointing, and he's coming in from the fields and he's ruddy and red-cheeked. So maybe red is is vigorous and and it's full of life. Maybe. I think far more likely we're supposed to connect the red color to the other important detail in the description. Namely, We should connect it to the fact that unlike any other sacrifice anywhere in Scripture, this one was to be offered to the Lord without draining the blood and pouring it out at the base of the altar first. That's a reminder, I think, of what a nasty business this all was. Why we should be thankful that that God gave us a sacrifice for sinners and we don't have to come and do all of these things. There were a few other sacrifices that God said had to be burned up in the wilderness. And every single one of them, all those others, they were all killed and drained in the tabernacle. And then the pieces, most likely, were carried outside the camp where they were burned, where the fire was waiting. Here, the animal itself is taken to the wilderness. The animal is slaughtered outside the camp so that not a drop of blood would be lost or wasted. None of it. And then the the, the priest, rather, sprinkled a little bit, seven fingers full, toward the tabernacle as a sort of symbolic connection to what was happening there was happening here. And then the rest of the animal, and I mean all of it, was completely cremated. That's likely the key to this entire ritual, actually. That's because in the sacrificial mind of the ancient Israelite, blood represented the full force of life person or an animal, didn't really matter, it was the blood that made the difference. So in the sacrificial offerings, it was always the blood that was sprinkled on the horns of the altar, it was blood by which the priests were consecrated to their service, and it was the blood of a sacrifice, specifically the blood that God said he would accept as a cleansing liquid to wash away the sins of his people. The text you can look up later is Leviticus chapter 17. Verses 10 and 11, there God commanded his people, they may not eat blood in any form. Why? He says in verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now Numbers 19, verse 5, God says the heifer shall be burned in his sight. The only one in all the scriptures, it's Skin, its flesh, with its blood, and its dung, probably entrails, shall be burned. The point was that when the animal was consumed, it would produce ashes with the blood kind of baked in, so to speak. It was a special sacrifice that contained, symbolically, the entire life of the animal in order to cleanse God's people from the entire defilement of death. It was a principle of substitution displayed in the strongest possible way. That's why they added other things like cedarwood and hyssop and scarlet yarn. Those were used in other purifying rites to cleanse the leper. And here God says toss it all into the fire so that when it's burned down it's all contained. It all becomes one sort of portable package later. But the blood is there. Now, uh, now that we've gotten this far with some of the details of the sacrifice, I think we need to acknowledge that this is where some people begin to lose the thread of what God is doing. Uh, There are so many actions here. There's so many symbols here. There's so much choreography here uh, that some skeptical readers look at this and they say, I know what this is. It's magic. It's an incantation. Right There's a power in these elements, and if you can figure out, if some ancient Levitical priest could figure out just the right uh, combination of uh, uh, red heifer and scarlet yarn and maybe an eye of newt for good measure, well, then you could have a potion that would be a cleanse-all from anything that ailed you. It's an incantation, they'd say. It's, it's nothing more than ancient superstition. On the other hand, if you grew up like I grew up, around people who get very excited about the idea of cracking the code of biblical prophecy, the red heifer means something completely different. And so there are people who are waiting with the ancient Jewish mystic Moses Moses Maimonides for the revelation of the tenth red heifer that will usher in the rebuilding of the third temple. There are people who are waiting for some prophetic red heifer because they say that will signify the second coming of the Messiah. And I suppose if you want to ignore exactly what God says He is doing in this text, you can make it in in anything you want it to be. But the problem is, God is telling us that He's not giving His people a magic incantation. He's not giving them the key to Bible prophecy. What is He giving them? Verse 9, and then repeated in verse 17, God says He is giving them a sin offering. He is, as he said, giving them a law concerning what they must do when their fellowship has been broken through uncleanness, brought about by death. For lack of a better word, God is giving his people a ritual. He's giving them an outward observance with spiritual significance. God, in this passage, is telling his people about unseen realities, And he's telling them about unseen realities through things that their eyes can see and things that their hands can touch and things that that they can understand even if they can't piece together theologically exactly how it is that sin sin brings death and death makes you unclean. Do you understand what God is doing for his people in this passage? God is giving them an opportunity to see and to believe in his version of reality, rather than the one that they can figure out for themselves. That's what all of it is about. It's all about believing what he says about us and about our human condition. That's why this passage makes the dividing line between those who receive God's promised cleansing and those who refuse it. Between those who trust God's interpretation and those who reject it because you know how it works. Even in Israel, there would have been some there. When they heard this law, they said, yeah, I don't think so. Red heifers, ashes, sprinkling with hyssop. Come on, man, I live in the real world. I live in the world that you can see and touch and empirically verify. I don't need all that stuff. I don't need all that that mumbo-jumbo for me. I don't need it. And to those, verse 13 speaks a word of warning. It says, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean. The skeptic says, I won't be unclean. And God says, yes, you shall. And on the day of you eat of it, you will surely die. Physically and spiritually and eternally. And the warning says, if the water is not thrown on, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. It speaks a word of warning. But for those who believe the Lord, he speaks a word of assurance. Look at verse 17. For the unclean, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt sin offering, and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Then down to verse 19. And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. Thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse him, and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and at evening he shall be clean. That last phrase is a word of assurance. It's a promise, as in, this is all it takes. In terms of personal cost, God made it as as easy as possible. You didn't even have to go and deal with a priest. Any clean friend could help you out here. They could get the ashes. They could put it upon you. All you had to do was believe what God was telling you. And he says, if you do that and you submit to what I'm giving you, you shall be clean. This is what the Lord requires. And if you trust him enough to take him at his word, he promises that your problem will be dealt with. So he's saying, if you touched the dead body, did you pay a visit to your uncle's house when his daughter got sick and died unexpectedly? If you have, don't forget the defilement of death. Don't forget the reminder of your mortality. Don't ignore the curse of sin played out for you in front of of your very eyes in, in faded shades of bluish gray. Remember your condition and trust in God's promised blessing. Submit yourself to what God is teaching you, to his reality, and you shall be clean. There's a dividing line in this text. The dividing line is between those who received God's cleansing and those who refused. Between those who trust God's version of reality and those who deny it. And that brings us back to where we started. Back to wondering if any of you have grown tired of that routine of confession by now. Week after week, sin after sin, service after service. There's a reason we go through that ritual every Sunday. It's a ritual too, by the way. There's a reason God leads us so regularly back in his word, back to the sins that we'd love to ignore if only we could. The reason is that our Lord wants us to understand the reality of our situation. He wants us to acknowledge our sinful bent toward uncleanness that we could never wash away, even if we were given a million lifetimes to try. The Lord wants us to see and know the ever-present reality of our sin. And so now he doesn't show us in terms of clean and unclean, but rather he puts his Holy Spirit in the hearts of his people. For conviction. So that when we see sin, we see it all over again. And when we open the scriptures, we see it all over again. And from time to time, we, we look at ourselves and we go, I can't get away from this stuff. Well, you're not supposed to. The Lord shows us our sins so often in order to keep, in order to keep us turning our eyes off of ourselves and looking instead to the sacrifice that he has promised to accept our cleansing. I told you a couple weeks ago that I have an ulterior motive, that, that we're studying numbers so that we can come back and study Hebrews. We're studying the, the shadow of Christ in the law of the Old Testament so that we can come back and rejoice in the substance of Christ in the word of the gospel. Numbers 19 is one of those many instances where the shadow directly corresponds to the substance. And also, it's an instance where this word in verse 19, He shall be clean. That promise of assurance prepares us for something even far greater that we find in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. It says, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer signifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more? There's the challenge. It's asking us to think from shadow to substance, from a signpost to the real thing. If the sprinkling of your body with the ashes of a heifer uh, purified your flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more, says Hebrews? If the heifer could cleanse your body, how much more will the blood of Christ purify your souls? If you've trusted in Christ Jesus, a single sacrifice is all that you've ever needed. Jesus has not been offered again and again and again. God has not sent sacrifice after sacrifice to continually cleanse the accumulated sins of his people. For by a single sacrifice he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified in him. One is all you need. And yet, having cleansed us once through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lord continues to remind us that it is his mercy that keeps us clean. He does that by showing us our sin. Over and over. So that we would look to Christ and say, how much more? Oh, the fullness of forgiveness and cleansing that's to be found in Him. We do that every week, you know. We don't just confess our sins. We confess our sins and then we hear the word of assurance. We confess our sins and then we come to the table. Where God speaks to us in outward signs and symbols, things we can touch and taste and smell, the spiritual realities that we can't see, so that we would believe in his reality rather than the one we can figure out for ourselves. We're going to come now to the table together. This table is for all those who have been cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ, who continue to trust in him and find that through him you have been made clean. Let's pray and come to the table together. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him all of your children have been cleansed and are being perfected. Lord, we thank you for his work for us, and we pray that you would help us to believe your word rather than to walk by sight. Help us to trust in our Savior, the one you've given for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.